Welcome to Spotlight's Extra Time from Stile Antico. This podcast accompanies our series of films released in spring 2021, shining a spotlight on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. With the help of expert academic guests and musical illustrations, we explore the history and context of these works. In this podcast, we'll be digging a bit deeper with some extra material. Check out our Acast page for some more recommended listening. You can view the videos at www.vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash spotlights. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Stile Antico Spotlights, a series where we shine a light on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. Each week, we'll be joined by an academic expert to explore the historical and musical context behind these masterpieces with musical illustrations along the way. I'm Helen Ashby and I'm delighted to be joined by James Arthur from Stile Antico and Owen Rees, Professor of Music at the University of Oxford and Fellow of the Queen's College in the amazing Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford to talk about the great Spanish composer Alonso Lobo's most famous work, Versa Est in Luctum. It was written in 1598 at the death of Philip II, the great Habsburg ruler. There was a long tradition of the Habsburg monarchs using music as part of the great celebrations of ceremony that helped to cement their family's power over most of Europe and beyond. So James, we know that Philip had many titles. He was King of Spain, of course, King of Portugal, um, joint ruler of England and Ireland for a time, King of Naples and Sicily and hundreds of other titles. Um, he also had four wives, not quite as many as Henry VIII, but nearly. Um, do we know much about what he was like as a person? Well, we know he had an extraordinary attention uh, and eye for detail. He was extremely preoccupied with the building of El Escorial, the part monastery, part palace, part mausoleum that his father, Charles, had asked to build for him so that he and his, um, Philip's mother, could be buried there. He even got concerned with the placing of the latrines in the building because um, he didn't want them to be too near the kitchens. And he especially made sure that his bedroom was right next to the chapel. He was very religious and he governed with a religious fervour especially in foreign policy, where he was very keen to take back the European lands that had been turned over to Protestantism. When he knew he was dying, he asked to be taken back to El Escorial, and his entire bedroom was surrounded by um, crucifixes and holy images, although he was very concerned that whenever he felt a bodily function coming on, they would all have to be covered up so he would not offend God. His valet gives a very vivid depiction of his final hours. And it is said that he died clutching his parents' crucifix. He took his last breath at five o'clock in the morning 
just as the seminarians were starting to sing the first mass of the day. So I'm sure Philip would have felt that uh, he was being taken on to the next place. He died in 1598 in El Escorial, and do we know what his funeral would have been like? Well, in fact, it's funerals. Every major city in the realm um, had an exequies ceremony for him. And of course, the empire was so huge, so he was mourned in the Philippines, named after him, in Mexico, in New Granada, which is modern-day Colombia, and then obviously in all the major cities in uh, Spain, and right up to Brussels. There was a little bit of rivalry amongst the Spanish cities. The city of Madrid was where the main event took place, but Seville was a richer city even than Madrid, and so they put on a spectacle even to rival the main event. But not all the funerals ran smoothly. In Seville, for example, when the inquisitors arrived at the service, they discovered that the magistrates of the town had taken the best seats in the cathedral and asked them to move, which they refused to do. In the middle of the service, the inquisitors excommunicated the magistrates. A huge kerfuffle took place, and so the service had to be abandoned and was actually restaged some two months later in December of that year. Oh, wow. So presumably the, the funeral at Madrid uh, would have been one of the most important ones and was, it was overseen and attended by um, Philip's heir, Philip III. Um, do we know what the occasion might have looked like and what music might have been sung? We're unusually well off actually for that particular set of royal court exequies. So these ceremonies would have happened in, um, as memorials to a recently deceased monarch throughout the Spanish kingdoms, of course, both in the peninsula and in Italy, in Northern Europe, uh, across the Spanish empire in, in Spanish America. But the most important of all those ceremonies was the ones organized by the royal courts in the Geronimite Monastery Church in Madrid. So you have to imagine the church draped from ceiling to floor with black cloth, you have to imagine that black cloth then covered with endlessly repeating uh, coats of arms of the deceased and these what they call hieroglyphs, which are part text and part pictures, um, offering people wise um, things to remember about mortality or about the deceased. And then the centerpiece is the catafalque, this great burning chapel, as they called it, um, which is the center of attention, covered in hundreds of great candles which has a representation of the tomb of Philip as the lower stage and then rising 
almost to the ceiling. So these were, um, these cataphalcs could be up to sort of 30 or more meters in height. And they're constructed specially for these occasions. So this is all ephemeral art, which makes the, the, the chapel in which these exequies are happening very dark in one way, entirely black in its um, dressing of the church, if you like, but also extremely bright from all these candles representing the flame of our mortality and extremely hot. Um, in terms of the music, we're very lucky for Philip's exequies, the court exequies in Madrid, because we have a draft order of service from his household. And it was drawn up specifying some pieces of music that either should or in some cases there was a choice of what might be sung. So we know, for example, that on the first day's liturgies, um, where you have the Office of the Dead, the Sanctum Morales. And we know that parts of the Requiem Mass were sung to movements by Guerrero, so the gradual and the trapped. And we know that there was a setting of the sequence by the deputy chapel master of the Royal Chapel, presumably specially composed. Um, but the main item, of course, was the rest of the Requiem Mass. And luckily, this document provides us with a clue. It says you can either sing a Mass by Certon or you can sing the Circumdederant Requiem Mass. And there is only one candidate for that, and that's the Requiem by Jean Richefort. Uh, quite an old piece by then, of course, decades old, because that uses a quotation from Josquin of this phrase, Circumdederant. And presumably, would it have been a rather large, large choir? And do we know how many might have sung it? There were debates about how many singers would have sung. Of course, the singers were the singers of the, the royal chapel. We know exactly where in the church they were positioned, and in fact, where they were positioned and where the king um, was to sit, Philip III was to sit, was, was switched by the king at one day's notice. They switched sides, basically, in order to allow the, the king better to hear the singers. So they placed the singers on the opposite side to him, but he was positioned in a little booth so that he was right next to the catafalque. So he was the centre of attention alongside the catafalque, could see the high altar, could hear the singers, and could see and hear the pulpit, could hear the, could hear the sermon. Do we know of any other pieces specifically written for Habsburg political ceremonies? We've got quite a lot of indications about what might have been sung at the ceremonies of the Order of the Golden Fleece from the mid-15th century onwards when it was created. But of course there's many different types of grand ceremonies surrounding people like the, the senior Habsburgs in the early modern period where music was used to mark the status of the ruler to draw the attention of the crowds, if it's an open air part of the ceremony, to the, cer to the procession approaching. Um, so you'd have, uh, for example, at ceremonial entries into cities in Charles's domains, you'd have temporary triumphal arches constructed along the route, often with musicians stationed on top of them. And there's one account of a, an arch collapsing and the musicians suffering injury as a result. So that's one potential place for motets, for example, to be sung. And then the great occasions of state, so uh, coronations and, of course, exequies or funerals are important sites for music being composed, particularly for that occasion. Oh, 
This was composed by Isaac, the court composer for Maximilian I, who was Philip II's great-grandfather. It was written for his coronation as Holy Roman Emperor, which was supposed to take place in Rome, overseen by the Pope. As it happened, it was deemed too dangerous to travel to Rome, and so the ceremony was hastily arranged in Trent, and a papal legate was sent to oversee the ceremony. This potentially means that this piece wasn't performed in the end, as it was so last minute. However, the text was specifically written uh, for the event. It even mentions the Kapellmeister Georgius. There's a line that says, Georgius has faithfully rehearsed this anthem for you. But the bulk of the text is Marian. Of course, Marian devotion was a very important part of liturgy and music in the 15th and 16th centuries. And so, by taking Mary as the Queen of Heaven, a direct comparison is being made with Maximilian, ruler on earth. So that was music for a coronation, but one of the other events in the courtly calendar that demanded music was the annual meeting of the Order of the Golden Fleece. Helen, what do we know about the Order of the Golden Fleece? Uh, the, well, the Order of the Golden Fleece was set up in 1430 by Philip the Good of Burgundy uh, on the occasion of his marriage to Isabel of Portugal. Um, it was set up as a sort of chivalric order, and this was quite a trendy thing to, to have in the 14th and 15th century. Um, the Order of the Garter in this country was set up around the same time. Uh, and it was sort of along uh, the same lines as the sort of heroically knightly deeds of, of, of old, um, echoing back to things like the Knights Templar, um, of course, with the Order of the Golden Fleece, um, things like Jason and the Argonauts and those heroic deeds of bringing back the Golden Fleece. Um, as well as promoting and safeguarding the Catholic Church, of course, it also had the function of being a very useful way of um, keeping tabs on your political allies and possibly even not so, many, not so much allies. Uh, and also just a way of generally making sure that everybody in the empire was sort of behaving themselves. So Owen, um, we know that quite a few of the Habsburg monarchs, um, the early monarchs, were really interested in music and Charles V um, had particularly favourite pieces of music and his aunt, who he was, uh, spent a lot of time with when he was younger, was a particular music lover. Well, what about Philip? Do we know whether he was interested in music? It's an interesting question and actually there's been quite a strong debate in the musicological literature about Philip's role as a supporter of music. So the, the view that emerged um, in the middle of the 20th century was that he was particularly strong in his interest in music and his support for it, that he was, uh, played a really important role, particularly in the support of Spanish musicians at court. And um, in fact, the evidence doesn't really allow us to say that, sadly. What's certainly true is that Philip, of course, took those elements of the arts uh, 
where he was acting as patron extraordinarily seriously. So the classic case is that the design of El Escorial, even the provision of El Escorial with chant books and so on, he, he really concentrated on the minutiae of that and wished to everything to be according to his will. For music, it may be that a lot of Philip's interest was in the realm of ensuring orthodoxy. Um, so he stepped in when he uh, gathered that there was um, a project to reform the chant in Rome, and he objected to this. He wished the chant to be left alone, partly for practical reasons. New chant books had been produced by Spain's cathedrals and other institutions. He didn't want them to go to the expense of copying new ones, but partly also because of his concern with orthodoxy and the traditional chant and its status. Um, what he certainly did do was to continue fostering the great Capilla Real, the royal chapel, this institution which combined northern musicians and Spanish musicians as it had um, uh, from throughout his reign. And um, we have stories about Philip as about his predecessors, which are designed to demonstrate that he was listening really closely to the performance of the chant by the monks, for example. So his bedroom, of course, at Telescorial, was right next to the altar. And so he could peer out through the opening in the side of his bedroom wall and, if you like, inspect and monitor the performance of the liturgy by the Geronimite monks of El Escorial. A good many music publications of the period were dedicated to Philip. And again, some musicologists have seen this as a sign of his direct encouragement and support for those composers. And it's not impossible that that was the case. But in some cases of Prince being dedicated to him, it, it's more likely that it's part of the general, if you like, infrastructure of patronage, that composers need the support of the great and the good. And there's almost nobody greater or more powerful, of course, than Philip. Yeah, sure. So it sounds like he was a bit of a meddler and a micromanager and very much a pious man, but maybe not particularly passionate about music personally, perhaps. But what about the relationship between Alonso Lobo and uh, Philip? Would they have known each other particularly? They might have. In some ways, uh, the status of Maestro de Capilla at Toledo Cathedral or in any of the other great cathedrals in Spain, which are away from Madrid, means that from Philip's reign, as opposed to the reigns of his predecessors as kings of Spain, the royal court is less in evidence because one of the important changes that Philip makes early in his reign is to make Madrid the permanent capital. So the Spanish uh, courts and household become less um, peripatetic than they had been in the time of Charles or in the time of the Catholic monarchs at the uh, start of the century. So the opportunities for somebody like Lobo at Toledo to meet the king might have been fewer. Um, certainly when Lobo is having his great book of masses printed by the royal press in Madrid, he asks Victoria to oversee some of the financial aspects of that. So he's not in Madrid to oversee those himself. But, of course, Lobo was one of, the, one of the most important sacred music composers um, in the realm, so it seems very unlikely that Philip was not aware of him. So does that mean we can think of a hierarchy amongst the cathedral musicians in Spain, that perhaps Madrid was the most important, followed by perhaps Seville, and then Toledo, a close third? I think a good way of thinking of it is that there are two parallel aspects to the musical world in Spain um, in terms of sacred music and its production and its performance. 
And one is the courts. This uh, very, uh, and one is the courts, which is this choir of northerners and Spanish uh, musicians, uh, which travels with the king. So, for example, it, it often travels to El Escorial when the king moves to El Escorial, and you get this strange mixture of musical types at El Escorial, the very simple music of the monk musicians and the much more elaborate and up-to-date, in some ways, music of the royal chapel. And then the other line is the great cathedrals, the, the other monasteries and so on. And, of course, the, the most important for music are the two wealthiest cathedrals, which are Toledo and Seville. And this makes those two positions of chapel master, Seville and Toledo, particularly prominent ones. So Toledo had previously been rather more important, but was sort of losing status to Madrid by this point. And what, how had that come about? So Philip decides to make Madrid the permanent capital of Spain. And this changed the nature of um, the relationship between the royal household and the historically most important cities in Old Castile and in other parts of Spain. The court before Philip's time had been, the Spanish court had been very peripatetic. And of course, the Spanish kingdoms had only relatively recently been semi-unified. So we have Castile on one hand and Aragon on the other. And so there were a number of uh, immensely important cities uh, which had been regularly visited by the court. But now Madrid has to expand at an enormous rate but be because it becomes the permanent capital and so you get this urban expansion and terrible problems with lack of infrastructure because the city is growing so fast. But uh, this becomes Philip's base at the Alcázar, the, the, um, the palace in Madrid and uh, there's a group of for example, monastic foundations set up near the palace, such as the, the Descartes Reales, um, where the Dowager Empress Maria comes to live in retirement, which um, was another Habsburg foundation. So there's this little nexus, if you like, of royal foundations in Madrid. And then north of Madrid, Philip builds El Escorial. <laughs> such fabulous music isn't it? It's a shame that we don't have more of it surviving. Do we know why so little of it survives? In part uh, how much music survives by a particular Spanish composer of this period relies on how many times they managed to get their music into print and for Lobo as far as we know we only have one book of masses that was ever printed with this group of motets at the end. He called it my first book of masses, Libro Primus Misarum. So he presumably planned or hoped to have others, but perhaps didn't have the financial capability. So there are far fewer printed books of music by Lobo than, for example, by Victoria or by Guerrero, who had a lot of their music printed in Italy. We know that Lobo would have been required both at Toledo and Seville to write for example, for Christmas. So these are sacred pieces but with vernacular text, with Spanish text. This was a regular requirement, a yearly requirement for uh, Maestros de Capilla in Spain. 
and sadly none survive as far as we know, but we have in the records of the copying of music for the Royal Chapel, one piece by Lobo, which is Abili Antico, copied in 1594. Sadly, as far as we know, lost. It's strange because um, there's so much, so many Abili Anticos by Guerrero that survive. Uh, it's strange that they survive, but not the Lobo. And again, this is in part at least because Guerrero published his collection of these sacred songs in Spanish. So that's, this was a, a repertoire which does survive in vast numbers. We have thousands of Villanticos surviving from 17th and 18th century Spain. Um, but they're quite ephemeral because they were, new ones were composed each year. There was perhaps less incentive always to preserve them in manuscript in comparison to masses and motets. And then one other Latin texted piece by Lobo that continued to be sung at Seville for many, many years was his Credo Romano, which was sung, it was the most regularly sung setting of any part of the mass in uh, Seville Cathedral after uh, the death of Lobo. <laughs> 